From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Anita Powell, VOA White House Correspondent. Welcome, Cindy and Anita. Well, here are the issues. The stakes are high as ever as President Joe Biden and his Democratic Party try to accomplish a giant legislative lift, promising a vast rewrite of the nation's balance sheet with a slim majority in Congress. The historic $3.5 trillion proposed government overhaul is also overshadowed by Republicans' refusal to approve routine legislation to keep the U.S. government funded and raise the nation's debt limit to avoid a dangerous default on borrowing. Top U.S. military officials fielded questions from the Senate Armed Services Committee that covered everything from the chaotic evacuation out of Kabul's airport to those left behind to the likelihood of terrorist groups once again gaining a foothold in the country with U.S. forces gone. Also, a new survey finds that since the end of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, most Americans want to increase diplomatic engagement with the world, but with a decrease in military presence. In a historic meeting at the White House, President Biden met with India's leader, Prime Minister Narendra Modi, to discuss relations between India and Pakistan. The U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan did little to reduce tense relations between the two South Asian rivals. North Korea's latest missile launch involved a new hypersonic weapon, the country's first test of an advanced missile system that would add yet another unpredictable component to its fast-expanding arsenal and raises questions about the sincerity of the country's offer for talks with South Korea. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Cindy, progressives know that senators have more leverage and leeway to change bills. They want their bill to contain as much of their priority legislation as possible and not get watered down by moderate Democratic senators. Really, what will this mean for the Democratic Party if not all of the $3.5 trillion social spending proposal is passed? Right, Kim. Well, this action on Capitol Hill this week has been changing by the hour. And I think we can definitely forgive our viewers if they are asking themselves, what in the world is going on? As you mentioned, with the government shutdown looming, unless the government is funded and then debt ceiling about to expire in a couple of weeks. And these two different bills, the one is the big $3.5 trillion spending plan on the social safety net, which focuses on human infrastructure, climate change, child care, elder care. And this is very near and dear to the heart of especially progressive Democrats. And the House may vote on a separate smaller $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, which focuses more on roads, bridges, the cyber net, and all of that. And this one has bipartisan support and passed in the Senate in August by an overwhelming 69 to 30 vote after months of negotiations. So now we have a Democratic House Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, who is the child of a politician and has an impressive ability to bridge differences. And I've never seen her bring up a vote if she couldn't get it passed. She's trying to bridge the gap on the Democratic side between progressives who want the big $3.5 trillion human infrastructure bill 
passed first because they're afraid that moderate Democrats and, you know, let's not even talk about Republicans, will not pass the bigger bill. So it's a bit of a mess right now on Capitol Hill. And Anita, first of all, welcome to the show and congratulations on your new position as White House correspondent. Thank you. Well, Anita, the government, as Cindy was mentioning, this government funding bill appears to be the least tangled of the bills. And it looks like Democrats will start moving on a bill to fund the government until at least early December. So is there a case for concern of a government shutdown? The White House has tried to play this down and said, I'm reminded of a line during the last three weeks of Nelson Mandela's life when the South African government kept calling him critical but stable. And that's kind of the messaging we're hearing out of the White House right now. The situation is changing by the minute on all of these issues. And I'm talking about the infrastructure bill, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, the debt ceiling and the shutdown. But it's all in flux right now, but they are hopeful and they're trying to project this image that things are going to somehow work out. We don't know how, we don't know when. So that's the best I can tell you at this point. But yes, it does look like things are moving, at least on the shutdown, to avert a government shutdown. The debt ceiling is another issue that we'll probably be dealing with again at the last minute on October 18th. But for now, it looks like there is a way to push through continuing resolution to fund the government a little bit more until the next crisis, I suppose. And that the White House seems to be very hopeful that that is going to go through smoothly. Yes. And in looking at the debt ceiling, it looks like this is the most tangled issue of them all, with Republicans refusing to vote for any increase in the debt ceiling while saying that they want one because they argue the burden should be on Democrats alone to figure out how to do it. So in looking at this, and I can just throw this out to both of you, how will lawmakers solve this problem? Will they use the reconciliation process? I think I'll turn that to Cindy, who's following a little bit more of these machinations, because the White House is just trying to kind of birth this baby into the world. And it's kind of up to the lawmakers to figure out sort of what it's going to look like. Right, Kim. And it is a very difficult question. And I'm not sure even the top Democratic leaders, Speaker Pelosi or the Democratic Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, know exactly right now. They've been saying that Republicans are irresponsible and pointing out that when Republican President Trump was in office, that Democrats, of course, routinely went along Democratic lawmakers and voted to extend the debt ceiling. So Republicans are basically now saying, you know, Democrats should do this on their own. And as far as I can tell, they're not sure, Democrats are not sure exactly yet how to do this. They've tried this week to pass a standalone just to, you know, extend that debt ceiling, but that didn't work. So I think, uh, as Anita said, it's one crisis at a time at the moment. It looks like they're on a path now to get the government funded. And then the next thing that they'll tackle is this, you know, unnecessarily thorny issue of U.S. not defaulting on things that, you know, the money that the Congress has already spent. Well, the American public is watching to see how this all plays out and how these bills will affect their lives. On now to other action on Capitol Hill. Top U.S. military officials fielded questions from the Senate Armed Services Committee. 
In his testimony to Congress, General Milley called the 20-year war in Afghanistan a strategic failure and acknowledged to Congress that he had favored keeping several thousand troops in the country to prevent a collapse of the U.S.-supported Kabul government and a rapid takeover by the Taliban. General Frank McKenzie, who as head of Central Command was overseeing U.S. troops in Afghanistan, said he shared Milley's view that keeping a residual force there could have kept the Kabul government intact. So, Anita, the White House says they received a range of advice on the evacuation. So what is their reaction so far to the testimony? Right. So the White House is saying that they're not going to reveal all of the details of these private discussions and the recommendations that the president was given, because there has been a bit of a firestorm over what he said in an interview where he said there were no other options given. And now we hear these generals in Congress saying we gave these options. These options were on the table. And the White House is, I think, trying to just say, chill out. This was a difficult decision. We had lots of options, but none of them were exactly good options. And we made the best decision we thought we could make at the time. And that's kind of the messaging coming out of the White House that like this was never going to be an easy situation. This was never going to be a happy withdrawal if there is such a thing, if there's such a thing as a happy end to conflict. And this was the decision that was made. And then now we just have to move on and contend with the consequences of that. So the White House is very much looking forward and not navel gazing and looking back, which is exactly what is happening right now on Capitol Hill. So there's this sort of like metaphysical gap between the way that Congress is looking and the way the White House is looking. The White House is saying, we need to look into the future and we need to move on with this. And Congress is saying, yeah, we still need to do a postmortem on what happened in this situation. So it's a it's a difference of perspective. And the White House is arguing, if you look at it from the way that we're looking at it, future forward, future facing, there are things we can do. And let's sort of lick our wounds here later and figure out how we can serve all of our American interests and still make this as less bad as it could be. General Milley cited a very real possibility that al-Qaeda or the Islamic State Group's Afghanistan affiliate could reconstitute in Afghanistan under Taliban rule and present a terrorist threat to the United States in the next 12 to 36 months. So is the U.S. concerned about terrorism? Yes, very much so, Kim. And that was one of the points that a number of Republican lawmakers made. And they were uh, using these hearings, which at times were raucous and gut-wrenching, with Republican lawmakers hammering President Biden for the chaotic departure, calling for him to resign, calling, you know, right face to face for Defense Secretary Austin to resign and Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair uh, Mark Milley to resign. And you had the Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair Milley patiently explaining that it just doesn't work that way, that he can present options, uh, as Anita said, to the president. But the president is the one who gets to decide. And one of the things that Defense Secretary Austin pointed out that, okay, if you're looking at what just happened, and it's still very raw, this is clear, now with the Taliban back in control in Kabul, this is a cumulative effect of 20 years and not just 20 days. There were multiple American presidents who were in charge, who made decisions. Democratic lawmakers pointed out that former President Trump had his Secretary of State Pompeo sign the Doha Agreement promising that U.S. troops would withdraw 
from Afghanistan in one year. So Democrats were saying, look, you know, mistakes were made, but why are Republicans just focusing on the past month and not focusing on the 20 years of the U.S. involvement? Right. And I think what's interesting is that the White House here has made no bones about the fact that in terms of the future in Afghanistan, in terms of all of the threats, the U.S. is now on the back foot in Afghanistan. We no longer have on the ground intelligence capabilities, which means that we can't assess threats as well as we could when we had soldiers on the ground. And what the White House is doing is saying, look, we're not the ones who initiated these negotiations who cut these deals with the Taliban government. It fell in our laps that we had to honor the commitments made by the previous administration, the Trump administration. And so they're kind of saying, without saying, you know, we're making the best of a bad situation. The White House is not saying that this is a good situation. They're not saying this is going to be easy, but they are trying to remind everyone that this very difficult situation that we all find ourselves in is not entirely something of their own making. It's the work of more than one administration, which is a not so subtle way of pointing a finger at the Trump administration. Also, Cindy, you covered the first big national survey since the end of the U.S. war in Afghanistan on Americans' attitudes towards foreign policy. So what were some results of this and what really surprised you? Yes, well, this was a survey of 2,000 American voters across the country, the first large survey since the end of the 20-year U.S. war in Afghanistan. And surprising to me is that a majority of Americans want less U.S. military involvement. They want fewer deployments, fewer troop stations abroad, but a 58% do want more U.S. diplomacy. So they don't want America to withdraw from the world stage, but they want to see more diplomacy, humanitarian aid, COVID relief to other countries, but they don't want to see the U.S. You know, going into wars in other countries. And this was especially pronounced among younger voters where 80% of younger Americans said that they believe that the president should get approval from Congress, unless the U.S. is under attack, that the president should get approval from Congress to send U.S. troops abroad. And this is, by the way, exactly what Joe Biden was selling when he gave his inaugural speech as U.S. president at the U.N. General Assembly last week, where he made a vow that the U.S. would now pursue a policy of aggressive diplomacy and would see military action as a last resort. So this is in line, incidentally, with what these respondents are saying. Yes, that's a very interesting point, Anita, because it seems that, you know, for President Biden, a lot of his domestic with talking about this, you know, this infrastructure bill and then on foreign policy, talking about that's this is going to be an era of relentless diplomacy instead of relentless war, that it is quite popular among the American public, the ideas, even though the public is still very divided, split along party lines as to whether they like President Biden or not. Those are some really good points. And I guess looking at the survey again, what are some of the biggest concerns that Americans, even young Americans, are? what are their concerns right now? Younger Americans especially believe that really taxpayer dollars should be spent 
more at home on domestic issues. There again, we have these things like infrastructure and climate change. And so the study didn't really go into that much what their particular concerns are, but a large majority say that the U.S. should not be involved in what they called nation building overseas. That if they're going to be, you know, building, opening post offices and repairing bridges and building roads or whatever, that should be happening very much at home. Okay, very interesting. And we're going to take a short break. And when we return, President Biden meets with India's prime minister as tensions continue between India and Pakistan. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference USA and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panelists who are joining me via Skype. Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Anita Powell, VOA White House Correspondent. Well, Anita, you reported on the recent meeting between President Biden and Prime Minister Modi at the White House. What were some of the highlights of this meeting? These two leaders convened over two days, which is kind of remarkable. Prime Minister Modi got one-on-one with both Vice President Harris and with President Biden. And they talked about, among other issues, security in the Indo-Pacific, which is part of the work of the Quad Strategic Alliance. They also talked about climate change and about the COVID crisis. What they didn't mention at all publicly was the, uh, I guess you could say it was an elephant in the room, was India's very upset neighbor, Pakistan, which, as anyone can imagine, has a big role to play in the future of whatever happens in Afghanistan, because it's also next to Afghanistan. Pakistan is right between India and Afghanistan. So they did not talk about that, but they talked about pretty much everything else. In the context of discussing Indo-Pacific security, The other elephant in the room is the country that also didn't get mentioned, and that's China. China's expanding ambitions in the Indo-Pacific region and in the South China Sea. So these were the issues that they discussed publicly without name-checking any countries in particular. And it seemed to be a very positive meeting that Indian Prime Minister took, I think rightly, as a signal of new closeness with the United States for India. And so this is kind of a big deal. And this was taken as a big deal by all of the parties involved, including the one party that was not invited, which would be Pakistan. The last time Prime Minister Modi, he visited the U.S. two years ago, and and so much has changed in the whole world since then. India has changed. America has changed. And COVID-19 has changed the world. So what would you say is the relationship between India and the U.S. in this challenging COVID-19 world, especially since they really didn't bring up Pakistan and China, as you mentioned? Well, the most important thing is the number 500 million. The week that Prime Minister Modi and President Biden met, President Biden announced a vaccine donation of 500 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine. That is a lot of doses. And the largest vaccine manufacturing facility in the world is in, guess what, India. So that is actually kind of a linchpin of this partnership, that India has the capacity, the muscle, if you will, to manufacture these badly needed doses that are going to go to the 100 lower income and middle income countries that the U.S. is sending them to. So that was obviously a topic of discussion, and that is going to be a big part of the India 
US relationship, at least for the length of this pandemic and possibly further as we deal with, I hate to say it, but it's possible, other pandemics. Yes, I was just going to mention, as Anita said, the elephant in the room, which is Pakistan. And that on the same day where we had Modi visiting the White House, we had India and Pakistan trading insults at the United Nations General Assembly with the Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan accusing Modi of a plan to purge India of Muslims. And then in a, in a rare response, an Indian diplomat stood up and accused Pakistan of sheltering Osama bin Laden back in the day before he was killed and saying India is a country which is an arsonist disguising itself as a firefighter, talking about Pakistan basically providing support also for the Taliban. So Pakistan was watching on the sidelines as Modi was at the White House and was not happy at all about this. And uh, I know that the White House press secretary was asked, you know, are you planning on meeting with the Pakistani prime minister? And she said, well, we haven't met with every leader in the world yet. So it's clear that the U.S. is frustrated with Pakistan and that uh, India and Pakistan tend to see this always as a zero sum game. But right now, uh, the U.S. is definitely interested in boosting ties with India and frustrated with Pakistan. Thank you for bringing up my reporting, Cindy. I was the one who asked Jen Psaki that question. I also think she said we wouldn't read into a face-to-face meeting between two leaders. Don't look at that as some sort of indication of a closer relationship, which is funny because that's exactly how they kind of marketed the Modi-Biden meeting as a big deal. But when I asked her, you know, is President Biden going to be meeting with Imran Khan? She was like, well, I wouldn't read that as a big deal. So it's a big deal when it's one country and not a big deal when it's another, apparently. But there is a huge trust deficit between the U.S. and Pakistan. As Cindy mentioned, Pakistan was the home for a significantly long time of one Osama bin Laden. And one imagines that the ISI, the Pakistani intelligence services, might have been able to suss that out, that the world's most wanted man was living in their country. And the U.S. is suspicious of Pakistan. And Pakistan is I think, fed up with American policy in Afghanistan that has had knock-on effects in Pakistan, the refugee crisis that Pakistan has suffered. And also, as Imran Khan mentioned, and I think this was kind of glossed over, but he mentioned and stressed that the U.S. conducted about 500 drone attacks in his country. And, you know, those wreak significant damage on just civilian populations. So right now we have these two countries that are both, by the way, nuclear powers at an impasse with India, also a nuclear power, buddy-buddy with the U.S. Very interesting relations there. And thank you both for keeping us apprised of your coverage of this. On now to another concerning issue. North Korea fired a short-range missile into the sea in its latest weapons test and has raised questions about the sincerity of its recent offer for talks with South Korea. So, Cindy, what is South Korea's response to this? Well, South Korea is in a bit of a bind because they are hoping, you know, for also for domestic political reasons to always hoping to improve relations with the North Korea and North Korea, as it typically does, is just sending mixed messages. We have this hypersonic weapon test 
with here defense experts in the U.S. saying that this is really worrisome. Even if you take all of North Korea's nuclear technology together, it's a formidable threat to the U.S. and its allies, especially South Korea, with this being the third major missile test this month. But then you have North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's sister, Kim Yo-jong's speech, holding out the possibility of negotiations with South Korea. So some observers of the region think that North Korea is back to its usual tactics of trying to divide and put distance between the U.S. and South Korea. Some also think, by the way, that North Korea is rattling its saber to try to pressure South Korea to talk to the U.S. about easing some of the extremely restrictive, extremely difficult sanctions and limitations that the U.S. has placed on North Korea. And this could be a way of doing it. If this weapon does work, if it is effective, this could represent an interesting technological leap for North Korea, which is significant and interesting. One wonders how they got technologically to this point and maybe where they had help. Well, we'll have to close on that note. And my thanks to our panelists, Cindy Sane, VOA Senior Diplomatic Correspondent, and Anita Powell, VOA White House Correspondent. I'm Kim Lewis, and thanks for joining us for Issues in the News.